Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Sir Salman Rushdie is one of the world's most beloved and respected writers. He'll be at the Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg tonight to discuss and sign copies of his latest novel called The Golden House. Salman Rushdie joins us this morning to talk about The Golden House as well. Sir Salman, welcome to the program. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. Have you ever been to uh, central Pennsylvania? I've never been to Harrisburg. It's going to be a first time for me. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I'm, uh, there are a lot of people who are here to welcome you tonight, I understand. So uh, good luck, and I hope you enjoy your stay. We're here to talk about uh, your latest novel, The Golden House. How would you quickly describe the thumbnail sketch of uh, The Golden House? Well, uh, it's trying to do two things. It's trying to tell a story about this uh, old patriarch from India and his three sons, who have clearly tried to put some kind of quite shady past behind them, renaming themselves, reinventing themselves, moving to New York City. And a part of the, the major part of the novel is, this, is the story of, of Nero Golden, as he calls himself, and his three sons, and what, what befalls them in New York. But it's set against the background of what's been going on in, in New York, in particular, and America in general in the course of the last nine or ten years. So there's a kind of large panoramic social background uh, behind the story of these of these men. Yes, and I think that is one of the most uh, fascinating parts of uh, and intriguing parts of the story is that it starts with the inauguration of Barack Obama. When I say starts with the inauguration, it's not like Nero Golden and his sons are at the inauguration. That's what's going on in the United States at the time and then leads up to today to the election of uh, 2016. Let's talk about Nero Golden. As you mentioned, He's a rich immigrant that uh, comes from India, moves to New York's Greenwich Village with his three sons. Uh, and, and as you said, there's there's a past there. You know, I don't want to give away too much here, but uh, they're, they're coming from a terrorist attack where his wife is, is killed. Yes, and, and that's one of the things that drives him to, to leave the country. Um, but it also rapidly becomes clear that he himself has been um, engaged in some quite shady practices back home, which he also wants to cover up and, and escape from, because in a way he's worried that that endangers himself and his children. He's trying to get away from... Um, from. I mean, there's a lot of mafia gangsters in Bombay, and he's become involved with them. The three sons that you mentioned, uh, and these are some rich characters, but the three sons play big roles in the story as well, don't they? Yes, and I mean... They all have their different um, forms of, of serious problems. The, the oldest son uh, is, high, is autistic, has high-functioning autism, bordering on Asperger's, and, and uh, you know, is also kind of brilliant. He's an inventor of, of, uh, of apps and video games, uh, but tormented by his condition. And the youngest son is uh, uh, suffering from a real inner anguish about uh, about gender, about whether he wants to go through gender reassignment or not. Uh, the middle of the three sons is an artist, and quite successful and quite sociable, but of the three, he's the one who most regrets the move, who most sort of yearns for home. And so all three of them have to work out their uh, their crises in, in, uh, in New York City and, and uh, and not all of it ends well, I'm afraid. Now, this is told from the perspective of an aspiring filmmaker named Rene, who uh, thinks the Goldens could be the subject of his masterpiece film, that this could be a career maker. Uh, you know, I, I know that you're asked this question all the time, but how much of you is in Rene? 
Oh, well, you know, the truth is, I think he's about, uh, I mean, he has, he shares some things with me. What he mostly shares is his, is his love of movies and his kind of film nerdery. Um, but I tried very hard to make a narrator who was as unlike me as possible. He's, he's in his mid-twenties, for a start. Uh, he's a born and bred New Yorker, as opposed to uh, an immigrant like me. Uh, and he's a, you know, he's a, he's a white uh, liberal who grew up in Greenwich Village. So, so it's, I really wanted a narrator to be, first of all, generationally different from me, through whom I could look at the story through the eyes of a much younger generation, and also to be different from me in these other ways. You know? and, and so he was actually one of the most enjoyable characters to create. Um, especially as he became much more active in the novel than I first suspected. I originally thought he would be a marginal you know, figure observing the lives of the Golden family. But actually, he intervenes in those lives quite dramatically at one point. It becomes very tangled up in them. As you mentioned earlier, this is set against the backdrop of uh, politics in America. What's occurred over the past eight years in the book uh, is the rise of the Tea Party, the country becoming more divided. Uh, Near the end of the book, as we get to uh, 2016, the election, there is a candidate referred to as only the Joker. Uh, The Joker you describe as being narcissistic, insane. Now, I'm not uh, putting that, you know, those exact descriptions toward any one person. But I, when I read it, I, the first thing I thought of is, OK, is this Joker modeled after Donald Trump? What about that? Well, he's a he's a he's a kind of satirical echo of Donald Trump. I mean, that's to say one of the things I thought is that if you think about a deck of cards, the two most unusual playing cards in a deck of cards are the Joker and the Trump. And I thought I didn't particularly want the Trump, so I'd have the Joker instead. So he's a kind of cartoon villain who capers around the edges of the story. And uh, there's one of the, you know, it's one of the characters' story talks about how Hollywood is being taken over by, you know, by cartoons, by Marvel and, and DC, and that maybe Washington is too. And one of the characters says maybe DC is taking over DC, Washington. As and that's. Now, what I was going to say is, I didn't mean to interrupt, is that, uh, you know, even though the Joker is not uh, one of the main characters, it's it's kind of a peripheral kind of, uh, character in the book. Um, I know that you've been asked this from reading uh, about the book and interviews that you've done, that this is one of the biggest questions that come up because a lot of people have looked at it and say, oh, you're, you're talking about Donald Trump there, right? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not denying that. You know, I, mean, I think that what, what happened is that uh, as I was writing the book in the last, during the course of the last two and a half years, um, you know, the phenomenon of the election campaign uh, became so important that it, it would have seemed ridiculous to leave it out of the book. I had to, in some way, uh, deal with it. And so I dealt with it in a kind of comic satirical way, which I thought was the most satisfactory way I could think of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something just said, how to deal with this. You've written books before that have led to criticism and actually even put your life in danger. There will be those who will be upset by this Joker character resembling uh, President Trump. Do you ever think about that criticism? Or is this your way of making a statement? Well, I mean, you know, truthfully, the moment you enter the political arena, there's going to be people who disagree with you because that's just the nature of the game. And particularly in this country right now, which is so divided and where feelings are so strong on both sides. Um, yeah, it's inevitable that if, if I mean, my politics are pretty clear. I'm a fairly well-known liberal progressive, but I, it's no secret who I voted for in the election. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, there will be there will be people who are, uh, you know, who are in favor of the current president who won't who won't like the portrait, you know, and uh, that's just what happens when you deal with when you deal with public affairs. You know, and um, yeah, and I, I mean, I just think that the book the book is a, a much larger than just that. It's not really an attack on presidents. You know, it's a it, it's a novel about human beings dealing with real problems, and in the context of a political situation which the narrator Renee is very anguished about. I mean, during the course of the book, he talks quite frequently about the rifts in the country and the pain he feels about that. So, 
so there's also that there's also that um, context. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're speaking with Sir Salmon Rushdie, who will be uh, signing copies of his latest novel, The Golden House, at the Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg tonight. And uh, that uh, whole event, the, the signing actually occurs at 8.15. Uh, but go to the website of the Midtown Scholar Bookstore to learn more about uh, Sir Salmon's uh, appearance in Harrisburg. You know, I'm always curious about this. How much of your life experiences or observations go into writing a, a book or a story, not just like this, but any of, of the books that uh, you have written? How much of an impact uh, does your own life have in what you write? Well, I, I think you know any any serious writer uses the whole of their experience in everything they do. I mean, I think that I can't say specifically that this thing comes from that thing, but it's true that I am who I am, and I've had the life that I've had, and and all of that goes to shape what I write. But I also think it's very important for writers to go beyond their own personal experience and to find things out that are interesting to write about, so that you know. The two sons of Nero that we've been that we were talking about, uh, the, the autistic son and the, the gender conflicted son, required me to do an enormous amount of work to learn about the reality of, of lives like that, so that I could portray them. You know, I think that there's a part of a novelist that I believe also sometimes needs to be a reporter, needs to get out and find things out. Something else that uh, is fascinating throughout the book, and I mean, you've done this in uh, other uh, other books that you've written, but there is such a tie-in to what is happening, not just politically, but around the world, that, uh, you know, a lot of the, the characters, or some of the characters, I should say, are attending uh, concerts or uh, different events where there are well-known people, and it almost sounds as if Okay, if you didn't know that this was historical fiction, that you would think, oh, this really happened. I mean, and so your background is so wide and so knowledgeable. That's a, a reader could get an education about on history just by uh, what what you've written in the book. Well, thank you. I mean, I hope I hope people, you know, what I hope is that people readers now reading the book will have a, what I think of as recognition pleasure that they read the book and say, yeah, this is how it's been. You know, this is how things are right now. And that's a pleasure for a reader to feel in a book that, that somebody has captured the way things are. And I hope that, you know, in the future, if the book survives, readers in the future looking reading the book will be able to, through the book, look back at this moment and say, oh, that's how it was. That's what was going on. Because what you tried, what I've tried to do is to capture this moment in that way. One final question, uh, Sir Salman. Uh, as far as, and we kind of laid out uh, the, the characters, without giving away too much, what happens Ooh. in the book? Well, um, all I'll say is that there are gangsters and murders. Things don't end well. <laughs> I have to read the book. <laughs> Sir Salman Rushdie will be at Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg tonight. Sir Salman, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine. Moving on, death visits everyone eventually, so it is puzzling why so many people have such difficulty talking about it. That's why Bob Urich and George Foley step up to lead the discussion about death in an unconventional and accessible manner. Using levity and a lighthearted approach, Burich and Foley speak to groups about the options and planning that need to be considered when the time does come. Joining us on this portion of the program is Bob Urich. He is the owner and operator of Myers Burich Funeral Home in Mechanicsburg. George Foley is the funeral consultant with Matthews International, a company that bills itself as a leader in the memorialization industry. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, I have to admit that uh, when I first heard about the two of you, 
talking to groups with levity about death. And, and I, I wondered, okay, how do you do that? How do you do that? And maybe I, I guess the, the broad question is, what are your goals when you go to talk to groups and even to our audience today about death, planning, funerals? What what's the what, what do you what do you look to accomplish? Well, Scott, as a uh, as a consultant to funeral directors, my job is to help make their jobs easier. And I think the best thing we can do is to have genuine information for their consumers, the families that are the bereaved, to understand that they have so many different choices. And every once in a while, one of my clients will invite me to address the general public. And one of the things that people seem to find interesting and also kind of thought-provoking is to see how other cultures embrace things, some things that may be kind of actually somewhat viewed as humorous in a Western eye, for instance, the bikini funerals that take place in some places in what? Southeast Asia. It's, I wasn't it's aware extremely of that one. Interesting. Yeah. It um, is. It sounds I, that way. In doing some research, I found a picture of bikini funerals for the, uh, a wealthy Asian businessman, and my wife was looking over my shoulder, and she said, well, at least he's surrounded by the things he loved in life. And those type of things kind of get maybe a chuckle from people and get people thinking about some of the things that might be appropriate for them. This on the heels of, of Mr. Hefner's death. Uh, I, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's true. Have... I forgot about that yesterday. Yeah, that, that could, could be quite the funeral. <laughs> so a lot of people are interested in what happens around the world. Well, why is that? I think anything foreign kind of has an appeal because uh, we, we ask, we're more apt to ask ourselves why someone does something if we don't understand it. And I have a good friend who's a thanatologist here in the States, and he's traveled all over the world, and he shares a sentiment with me that he picked up overseas um, from someone in England saying, you Americans have an unusual attitude towards death. And he said, what's that? And he said, you believe it's optional. You don't face it. You don't deal with it. You think that you're too mature to have the emotions, and that's just not true. You're just not wired that way. So what what my mission is for my clients is to say, let's provide products are a small part of something that leads to a ceremony that makes sense. Uh, they're not always necessary, and they come in every possible price range. But it is something that can help someone have a visual uh, focal point or make sense of something that's extremely difficult. The most important thing is what, what my colleagues like Bob and all of my other clients do in the service end of things for families. They're the ones that are really going to help people go from grief to recovery. So, Bob, it is very difficult for people to speak about. And let's face it, I mean, it's understandable because we are grieving. It, it's maybe the most difficult uh, time in our life, if it's a, a loved one, someone we're very close to, that, uh, you know, this is just very difficult to talk about. But even beforehand, Americans, you know, as Churchill said, Americans have a hard time discussing death, don't they? They do. You had wanted a little bit of uh, a little bit of levity in our conversation today, so I'll start with this. Just imagine going home and saying to your wife, you know, for Thanksgiving this year, let's do something a little different. Let's get all the kids together and let's sit down and let's talk about our deaths. Let's find out what they'd like to do when we die. That is not a comfortable Thanksgiving no, conversation. that doesn't sound like it. <laughs> no. So many, many people in our profession have talked for many years about the family conversation. Let's talk about these difficult topics ahead of time. Two things interfere with that. One, for many people, their children don't want to talk about their parents' death. Right. Right. And so right away that stops. We have many couples where one wants to talk and one doesn't. So often these are things within the family unit that stop that conversation. Uh, humor tends to diffuse that. You know, if, if a spouse can drag another one to a seminar where there's some good humor and just some, some very sensitive, well-placed humor, people's defenses just naturally start to fall. And I think that's one of the reasons, as George said, people are interested in other cultures. It's easier to talk about that because it's removed from us. It feels safer. You know, then talking about it, the closer it gets to home, the more uncomfortable it gets. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that uh, with uh, a lot of family members who don't want to talk about death or even make the plans, it's like it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, OK, if we talk about it, it's going to happen. Well, it is going to happen sooner or later. But I don't know. There's something almost like a superstition there that oh, can't talk about, like a no hitter with a pitcher. Don't mention it because then the next guy's going to get a hit. Same thing with death. So don't talk about it because it will happen. Well, it will. It will happen. And people are so funny. They'll leave an arrangement conference with me and, and they'll have planned their funeral, so to speak. And they'll say to me, they'll look at me with all seriousness and they'll say, 
well, now I guess if I die, I'm ready. And that if just slides right in there. If I die, I'm ready. <laughs> but it's it's okay to talk about what will happen. I, I said to you that there were two things that stopped this. The yes. other piece of this puzzle is that when we experience the death of someone close, what we need to do is heal. When someone is still alive, and especially when they're healthy, we're not feeling anything about the pain and grief and suffering that we're going to feel when that person is torn away from us by physical death. And so it's hard to start thinking about healing. Just imagine again, if you were to think about, you know, in three years when I break my arm, this is what I'm going to do to get better. It's just not something that you can connect with. It's not real enough. And when this starts to hit home is when people experience the first close death to them when they're in certain age ranges. And then they say, oh, this is real. Maybe now I should start talking about it. So the, the public programming and groups that ask us to come, the first thing they ask us is, please be funny. Because they don't, they don't want their, their, their um, constituency to sit through a real heavy program. And uh, the way that I figured that out, because it took me a while to figure it out, people would say, would you come speak to our group? I said, oh, I'd love to do that. No sales, just information. It'll be a comfortable conversation with the undertaker. And we wind up going, and there are six, eight, or ten people in the room. But then in six or eight months, we'll get a call from the same group. Would you come back? And now there are 20, 25 people. And then the next time, there are 50 people. Because they all leave and say, this guy was so funny. you got to come and hear him. And people do want that information, but they... They don't want to think about what's going to cause them to use it. So, George, what specifically don't people talk about? I think one of the problems is, of course, admitting the inevitable, that it is going to happen. No one wants to say, hey, I'm really planning to have a bad day tomorrow or five years from now. And it's a, it's a difficult conversation for, for people to even interact with some funeral directors in public because they just don't know what to say. I think part of the problem is that uh, in today's society, we've become so ingrained to having instant gratification, whether it's finding something for sale on the Internet or, frankly, uh, just not facing up to the fact that we're going to lose a loved one that uh, it's we kind of forget that it's important to take pause we want everything to happen immediately and I, I, I read an interesting story one time from a fellow who was an investigative reporter who really had an axe to grind with funeral service. He had attended a funeral of a friend that, would, that died tragically, and it was not a good funeral. One of the, the typical stories that Bob and I hear all the time with mispronunci mispronunciation of the name, all those terrible things. So he went on a, a vendetta to really kind of grill funeral service. And what he did, and it's actually this, um, the first time I encountered this program was actually on your station. It was called Death, the Trip of a Lifetime by Greg Palmer. Fantastic documentary. And his thinking turned around. And the way that happened was by his travels around the world, investigating how different cultures embraced death traditions, thanatology. And he found out that there were specific customs in various parts of the world that differed from one another, but there were some consistencies. One of them was there was an acknowledgement uh, that, that friends and family gathered to say, okay, we know this happened and we, we know your life has changed forever and the rest of us are going to help you get through that. And I think that's kind of at risk of becoming lost in our society where everything's done over the phone or a text message. But it is more important than ever that we interact with one another and support one another. I hope that someday, 100 years from now, when my kids are at my funeral, somebody says, your dad was a nice guy, and let me tell you a funny story about him. You know, I've noticed that, just my own observation, that funerals have changed over the years, that... Uh, Okay, maybe it was what you were talking about, Bob, that uh, that first experience with the death of a loved one, you know, when a young person, you know, 12, 13, something like that, this is the first time I experienced anything like this. But so maybe it's just getting older, but I don't know. I think I have seen that, you know, there's a lot more photographs around, sometimes even video, that the people who are delivering a eulogy or speaking about uh, the person who uh, is deceased that they'll tell funny stories rather than uh, something that, that it's just all serious, it's all sad, it's all tears, that these things have changed. It's, okay, you see this every day. Have they changed? Dramatically. <clears throat> in, in fact, they're changing. The rate of change is increasing. 
So you have two things, among other things, among being a funeral director, which I, I love being a funeral director and helping people find a sense of healing. But I also love to study the business and the, the economics of what's happening related to our profession and our profession of caring. Some of the things that you've mentioned, the times of sharing where people are speaking, uh, the videos, the pictures, the memorabilia that people bring in, we, and out of respect for the family, of course, we'll keep everyone anonymous, but we just had uh, a service where it was literally a Halloween service. It was such a beautiful service. The entire building was decorated for Halloween. The closing ceremony was we rang a doorbell and everyone came up and trick-or-treated at the casket because this was the deceased's favorite thing to do was to see the kids dressed up and happy and, and enjoying themselves. Uh, all of the things that are changing require funeral service to change. And so the question becomes, is it chicken or egg? Is the funeral director leading the change or is the community leading the change? And I would say that for most for most industries, the community, the public leads the change. So many funeral directors are picking up on this and saying, people don't want what we used to offer. Uh, that's not healing to them any longer. And you're right. I think it's really a part of our fabric as a, as a community now. And so the funeral directors who are keying into this are saying, let's go ahead and promote these new ceremonies and rituals because the value, as George alluded to before, is in the gathering. It's in the community coming together and gathering physically, not on Facebook or social media, but, but coming together uh, and facing each other, embracing each other, and supporting each other. So the rituals and the ceremonies are changing, um, and they're going to continue to because the boomers want it their way. And Are there funeral directors that, I don't know if I'd refer to them as old school, who would refuse to do something like that? Well, of course, but in every profession that's the case. I think that change is hard for everyone, and as we get older, it becomes a little harder. It's easier to sit comfortably in our recliner rather than than get up and do something different. And so I, I think that um, this, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that we have some what I will call very, very good traditional funeral directors. And then we have some very, very good, more progressive funeral directors who are trying to be more responsive to the community that's saying, we don't find healing in these old rituals as much. We now find them in these newer rituals. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about, well, as you can hear, we're talking about end of life, death, uh, having a conversation that many people won't have, and funerals in particular. Bob Burek is owner and operator of Myers Burek Funeral Home in Mechanicsburg. George Foley is a funeral consultant with Matthews International. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at w. WITF.org. Something that uh, I just was reminded of, Bob, when you were talking about it, and you know the name of your business, Burek Myers Funeral Home. Um, there may be people who don't realize what the law says here in Pennsylvania, that funeral homes are owned by families, right? Or has that changed? I'll say yes and no. So our, our law basically says that in Pennsylvania, if you're an independent operator, such as we, and you have anything other than a pre-1935 license, that you have to be uh, a funeral director to own that business. Now, it won't come as any shock that there are a lot of people who have spent a great deal of money on very smart attorneys to find ways around that law. That law has what has kept out most corporations from invading Pennsylvania the way they have invaded, and I shouldn't use that term, but the way they've come into the market in Florida and Arizona and other states. But everyone knows we have a, a rather aged population here in Pennsylvania, and with the number of deaths that are expected uh, as time moves forward, uh, it's a business opportunity. I hate to say it that way for these big companies. Our laws have done a really good job keeping those companies largely at bay and kept keeping funeral service generally as a smaller operator in our commonwealth. However, there are smaller consolidators that exist in Pennsylvania, and the large consolidators, the SCIs of the world, do own locations in Pennsylvania, though it's a very minimal number, especially compared to our population size. What you're talking about, and you've used the terminology, and you say it is a business. And I think we all can envision if a bigger company came in that uh, their motivation, main motivation, main goal, may be to make money. But this is how you make your living. How do you weigh that money-making, making a living versus you're providing a service that, uh, again, 
people aren't really thinking about money at that time. You know, for me, it's very easy. And I, I will just quickly interject. People need to think about money at that time, which is also why it's good to have a comfortable conversation ahead of time. Because this can be a significant expense for someone. It's it's by no means the most expensive things most people do in life. Most people have expenses that far exceed this. But it is a lot of money for something you don't want at a rather sensitive time. So when it comes to the financial aspect, for me as, as an owner, and I can only speak for me on this front, my philosophy and, and our team at, at Myers-Bierig Funeral Home and Crematory is that you care for people and you remain focused on people the money will take care of itself. Um, I truly believe that that model works when you're talking about a high-touch, high-warmth, high-caring profession. If you stay focused on what's truly important, which is the people in front of you, and you stay focused on their healing and their betterment, the financial aspect has a way of taking care of itself. I'll give you a quick example, if I may, mixing business and funeral service. The way we care for people is such that, believe it or not, in six and a half years, we've had a total of four accounts not pay their bill. Now, for any business, that would be considered an amazing success. But it's not because we'd strong iron anybody. It's because literally people want to pay their bill. I think that that comes when you give of yourself and you really care for someone else and they take high value away from the experience. And that, to me, is what says that we're succeeding in the care objectives that we have. You know, there's some irony there in that uh, something that people don't want to talk about, but they feel responsible for that. And I think you're, you're right. I mean, never really thought about it before is that they, after the fact, they look at it as this is a responsibility. This is something that I, I, I have to take care of. George, and I don't want to, I mean, we are talking about something that's very sad, but uh, um, are there... Are there times when, okay, we've talked about humor, we've talked about people with memories and telling humor stories or lighthearted stories at, the, at the, someone's funeral. When someone has died of a violent death or an unexpected death, does that change how, how this occurs? Absolutely. We're, we're all taken by surprise when something tragic or unexpected happens, particularly if someone is just too young to leave. A child, especially. That's the absolute worst. And, and the, the greatest thing about my job is that, that I work with funeral directors. And the reason my job exists is because I'm more of a business consultant. My customers are caregivers, and they rely on providers like me to say, okay, let me show you what to do in a certain aspect. My expertise is casket merchandising, and that's a very, very small part of what my customers need. What my intention is to let them focus on their expertise in helping those people recover, no matter how difficult those situations are. And it constantly amazes me as to how someone can be not only a technical professional, a business manager, have uh, fiduciary responsibilities, and also be the nicest guy in the world on the worst day in your life. It just amazes me, and that's why I have such high admiration for funeral directors. Regardless of what firm they work for, it's, it's far more than an occupation. It's a vocation. But, yes, things can be much more difficult. And hopefully my small role in saying let's find a product that helps make that significant uh, is is helping helping my customers meet their challenge. One of the things that that all businesses do is try to be more valuable to their clients. We go far beyond having just products. We also offer websites for people that are completely pro bono about what should I think about? Where can I go and not be not have to face any sales pitch at all to learn about funerals, what my choices are, what other people have done, and we have things like be remembered. Uh, dot com and remembrance process. They're completely pro bono where someone can just go and learn about funerals. The biggest problem Bob faces is that he has people coming in rejecting the traditional model from 30 years ago without having a good idea of what they really do want. They might have an idea or they've seen something somewhere else, but they really don't know how to put it into words. So my challenge and Bob's challenge is to say, how do we communicate that through websites, through graphics, through education of personnel to make sure that Bob's clients know that they have all these choices open to them. Bob, in the next segment of our program, we're going to be talking about the Dauphin County filing suit against the pharmaceutical manufacturers' uh, damages caused by the opioid crisis. Um, I understand that in your business, you have seen an impact in as a result of this opioid crisis, right? 
Yeah, there, there's no question about that, and it's it's been absolutely horrible. It's it's cut across age lines. It's cut across uh, socioeconomic lines. It's cut directly into the heart of our community, as most of the other communities around us. It has been just a heart wrenching experience. So much so that we've been trying to find ways to get the word out in our community. Uh, this year, Mechanicsburg's downtown wrench drop. Uh, we're going to be the, the title sponsor, and I said to the the organizers, we want it to be uh, a just say no to drugs and alcohol and uh, and impaired driving. We want that focus because we want the conversation. You know, we. I don't think you're ever going to. I've never been a drug user, so it's hard for me to relate to this issue. But I see, I see the grief. I see. Um, the absolute devastation that this epidemic leaves right in our community, cutting across, again, all the lines. And it's just been absolutely heartbreaking for everybody. Mm-hmm. Just a few people are, I'm sorry, just a few people, so a few parents are having the courage now, and it's hard, it's so hard, to actually say in obituaries, say in public, that this is the cause that my, my son or my daughter or my, my young spouse are no longer with us. I don't know that we're ever going to be able to convince a drug user to put the needle down with that message, but maybe we can convince people to get ahead of the curve and, and to get the younger people more minded to stay away from these things, to get the professionals minded to, to not be so cavalier in prescribing these things if that's in fact still happening, which I imagine will be addressed later. Bob Burek is the owner and operator of the Myers Burek Funeral Home in Mechanicsburg. George Foley is a funeral consultant with Matthews International. Gentlemen, thank you very much for, for being with us today. Thank you. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Eighty-five people died of opioid overdoses in Dauphin County in 2016. County commissioners feel the pharmaceutical companies that manufacture and market prescription opioid painkillers bear some responsibility, and they're taking action. Joining us is Dauphin County Commissioner uh, uh, Jeff Haste. Commissioner Haste, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Quite a message there right at the end when we're coming from sure a, a funeral, funeral director. And, and he, he hit it right on the head. It crosses all segments of our community, and and that's what, uh, you know, is heart, so heart-wrenching about this. We've had a number of town hall meetings where we've gone out and we've talked about this. We're trying to get the word out. And at every single one, we've heard family members uh, come up and talk. And, it, you know, it goes, again, across the board. You have scholars. You have great athletes. You have uh, older folks, you know, professionals who've got addicted and whatever. And it's just... It's an epidemic that we've all got to pitch in and, in and help. And and then the reason we took this action is the only folks not at the table are the, are the pharmaceutical manufacturers. We have law enforcement there. And, you know, as we heard earlier, we have the funeral director stepping up and trying to do things in, in the community. You know, we do it at the county level. Our social workers do it. Uh, we, we have treatments at the jail facilities. The hospitals are doing it. Family members are doing it. The pharmaceutical companies aren't at the table. And this is to bring them to the table and get them there. This is where it started. Um, We have reason to believe that they knew this was going to happen. And it's got to stop. All right. So let's talk specifics. What specifically are you asking for or what are you talking about in the suit? Well, we've hired uh, a law firm. uh, And they're well known. Um, They're out of Philadelphia. Greg Heller is the the lead attorney from that that group, and we are in the um, uh, fact finding segment. You know where we're gathering the data, and what we are going to do is we're going to go after the manufacturer, and we're going to say this is what your practice has cost us. This is what has been done in dollars, in lives, in damages to families, and we're going to go after those funds. Because we may not be able to bring anybody back, but we want to make sure that we're taking care of those in our community now. And the increase has gone up. It goes up every year greater than the dollars have the ability to pay. And we want to put those dollars back in the street. We want to get our community whole again, and they need to be at the table. Now, I noticed that uh, when you said pharmaceutical company, that it was singular. Do you have one company in mind? No, it's we don't. Um, there are a number that are being looked at. The suit will be done um, based upon the information that we gather. And the law firm is doing that now, and they have some very good preliminary information. Uh, 
now, you know, I, I think when we talk about this thing, uh, this this crisis that we're going through right now, there will be people who will say, well, you know what, Commissioner, uh, we understand where you're coming from, but the ma- manufacturers of opioid, the painkillers, they're, they're not uh, making heroin. They are not forcing someone to stick a needle in their arm because, you know, it's it's worth a discussion of how this all kind of transpired. Started off a lot with opioid painkillers, went on to heroin. What do you say to someone like that? And, and you know, I guess there could be some truth in the fact that, the, in the, you know, they don't manufacture heroin, but they, they helped manufacture the addiction. It was the addiction. And it's time and time. You know, too many people hear this and they think, oh, it's the street user we're talking about. It is not. As the funeral director said, it crossed there. We've, we've sat there and we've seen you know, scholars, you know, young men and young women who are, have great grade point averages in high school get ready to go do something. Something happens and they go to the doctor and they get an opioid and they get addicted to it. We have great athletes who have gone out there and had a knee injury or an ankle injury, something blowing them out, and they get addicted to it. We have older individuals. I know a person directly who used to work for the county, had cancer and then back surgery all at the same time. What did they give him? Opioids. What happened? He got addicted and could not get off of it. And then what happens is when somebody says, uh-oh, we've got to pull back and we're not going to give them the opioid anymore, that craving doesn't go away. You know, and as someone said before, to me, I don't know why you can't just say the people just stop. I thought that was the answer. It's clear you can't. And so when the opioid stops, the prescription stops, the craving and the need and the demand does not go away. And and it's they're feeding it's really they're feeding the 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 pain that's caused. You know, it's hard to understand this but in talking to addicts, it's not this and someone brought up that it's not a high. You know, we keep saying they're getting high. It is not a high. It is it is a, a a way to feed and to deaden the pain that's been caused by the addiction, the withdrawal of the opioid. That that pain is so great that they need something to ease down that pain, and it gets stronger and stronger all the time. So they're feeding the pain; they're not getting high. Our guest during this portion of the show is Dauphin County Commissioner Jeff Haste, and we're talking about a lawsuit that the county is uh, going to file against uh, opioid manufacturers. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. So... As you have described, you you think that uh, the pharmaceutical companies have manufactured a product that has fed this addiction. But in what way? I mean, they were making a product that they're actually, I mean, a legal product that uh, there was a call for, that a lot of people, a lot of doctors were obviously prescribing it. People were saying, I, this 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 pain in my back, it won't go away. This knee injury, the pain is just horrible. Yes, I need something, and Tylenol is just not going to cut it. I need something more than, than this. So when what did they do? What did those pharmaceuticals companies do that you feel is wrong? And, and let me just take a step back. There, there still is a legitimate need for opioids. Um, you know, end of life, you know, severe pain, things like that. I have reason to believe, and I've seen some some things that lead me to believe that not all, some folks in the manufacturing side of it knew the addictive nature of the opioids. They knew what this would do. And instead of trying to tweak that or, you know, I don't mean it this way, but dumb it down or do something else with it, they made a business decision to continue to try to market opioids. And not only just to those, but to grow their market. And and I understand they're in business and what they need. And, you know, there's uh, on some of these aspects, and we, we can't forget, pharmaceutical companies do a ton of research that ends up being very good for us. And it's not those good ethical folks who we're after. It's the ones who made a decision to put dollars and business over top of lives. And there are, I've seen some things, and I have some belief that there are some companies out there that did that. And those are the folks that we want to do it. They helped grow this addiction when it did not need to be grown. And they are not at the table now. The rest of us, taxpayers, first responders, police officers, everyone, families are paying that price. We need them at the table to help solve the problem. 
And something I also want to point out, uh, we, we've had you and your colleagues on the program before talking about the challenges that, that counties are facing. This is where, on the county level, this is where many of the services are delivered. Absolutely. And so when you're trying to recruit, recruit some of this money, it's because it is cutting into your budget, right? And let me put that in perspective. You know, in uh, from June of 2016 to July of 17, Dauphin County spent $19.6 million to help 2,859 people suffering from addiction. And those numbers mark an 860% increase in treatment dollars from 2013 to that time frame and a 400% increase in the number of folks that were addicted and needing help in that time frame. Those do- those percentages, those numbers far exceed anybody's budget, anybody's ability to pay. And so what happens is it's still the most critical need. And what it does is it, it takes services away from other folks or they don't get serviced. And it, it is adding to the problem. And we've got to find a way to stop it. It's not fair for the taxpayer to try to address this. It is, it is fair that the opioid manufacturers who help create this addiction come to the table and help pay it. They need to be a partner in this. An 860% increase from when? From 2012, the, the 2012 year to the 2016-17 year. And how much money? $19.2 million. How much of that was budgeted directly for this? That's a question I don't know the answer off the top of my head, but I can tell you it's not that full amount. Every single year, we're 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 trying to scramble and find more money for this. And folks, by the way, we're talking about <clears throat> Dauphin County because they're filing the suit, but every county in our listening area is going through the same thing. So just uh, think about that. Let's go to Rod in Lancaster County. Rod, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing a well. Retired pharmacist. And I have over 40 years behind the counter. This is not a new problem. As long as there have been controlled substances, there have been abusers, misusers, overusers, um, manipulators, doctor shoppers. I agree that the pharmaceutical manufacturers, who I personally hate, did a terrific job of promoting the use of narcotics to prescribing physicians and made pharmacists a compliant part of that. I do not agree that the pharmaceutical manufacturers are responsible for the heroin users. Anybody who sticks a needle in his arm with a poisonous substance knows what they're in, what they are in for. They know that it leads to death. I, I think that the use of uh, Narcan multiple times on the same people for overdose is just a waste of taxpayer dollars. Okay. One time and done. Rod, thank you very much for your call. Commissioner? And, and he's correct. As we said before, they did not cause the heroin, but they caused the addiction that drove someone to the heroin. And, you know, and I've talked to somebody, and it's easy to sit there and say, you know, they know when they put that needle in, it's death. But when you're talking to someone who is in, and it's, again, I'm not a user, I'm not, I don't have an addiction issue, so uh, it's hard to understand. But talking to those who have it, that craving to kill the pain from the withdrawal from the prescribed opioid is so great, they're willing to take that chance to put that pain away. Um, and, 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 you know, on the Narcan side, you know, my colleague George Hartwick says this many times, and I think he's got a good point. You know, when somebody says that about it once and done, you know, we unfortunately don't say that to the diabetic when we when we see them eating another donut or something like that. We don't say you get one donut, you can't go have another. I mean, it's it's very, you know, that's very easy to say by some folks until you start talking to the families, you start talking to people in, in their face. We know in the addiction world, we know that the, the addict on, on, on any given day, no matter what the addiction is, is going to fail at least three times. Those that recover fail at least three times. You know, you know. I don't know we can put a number on the Narcan. Let me take another call here from Bethany in Harrisburg. Bethany, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hi. Actually, it's Bethany, but that's okay. Okay. With an uh, S. Okay. So here's, here's the deal. I'm going to talk really fast. I'm a prescriber. I'm a new prescriber. But my um, experience has been when I was a nurse on the floor, 
We had one nurse found in the back of his car with a needle in his arm. We had one um, nurse hang himself due to um, many issues, but also he was using pain meds. So then I go from there to um, a rehab place where I see all kinds of people. I had one patient who um, actually was um, a, uh, a person who helped people with um, addictions, and in between her stops, she would go and score and shoot up. That's why she was there. There is never too much Narcan use. I agree completely with the diabetic um, example. People are killing themselves, period, in America, slowly and quickly. And I don't think we can put um, a value on that in terms of, sorry, dude, you used it too many times. You can't. That's the first thing. The second thing is heroin has the highest recidivism rate of any drug anywhere. And once you talk to somebody who is a user, regardless of how they got there, you know that there are very many levels to their pain. Hey, it has, and you, you have, if, if this guy who said Narcan once and done knew a heroin addict, he would understand that that's not an appropriate statement. Hey, I'm almost and out of last, time. Go ahead. Thank, I'm almost out of time. Thank you very much for your call. Commissioner, we only have about a, a minute left. I mean, you can uh, follow up on what Stephanie had to say. Uh, but overall, what are you looking for here? Again, we're just trying to get the pharmaceutical companies, the manufacturers at the table to help solve this problem. Uh, I, I truly believe uh, that we will solve the problem. You know, I've seen a tremendous amount of commitment from law enforcement, from our social workers, from families who, as, as the funeral director said, who are now speaking out and saying, this is why my son or daughter died. And, you know, putting it out there so we can talk about and have this public discussion. I think we'll beat it, but we need the manufacturers at the table to help fund it. Real quick, uh, Dauphin County is not alone in doing this, right? No. In fact, I've talked to colleagues all around the nation. We're hoping this becomes a nationwide, much like the tobacco settlement issue was. We want to make it into a nationwide settlement so that everybody wins in this. That's kind of what it reminded me of. Dauphin County Commissioner Jeff Hayes, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on uh, Monday's program, we're going to be talking a little bit more about health care, something that's getting a little momentum, or at least it's being discussed more, and that is single-payer or Medicare for all as far as uh, health insurance goes. That comes up on Monday's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com.